Mars Magazine podcast. My name is Dario Strange, and this week we have a returning guest, a returning friend, John Threat, uh, hailing originally from Brooklyn, but right now you're based in Los Angeles, right? That's right. Hey yo, uh, hey yo. <laughs> what is, it? is this? So I get the feeling like when we do this, you feel like there's like a vaudevillian kind of like uh, show thing going on here, right? I don't think there's anything wrong with channeling the spirits of creativity from the past. <laughs> from the past. Oh, damn. Shots. Okay. So this week we're going to talk about Lost in Space, the new series on Netflix that is essentially an, a reboot. Uh, we're also going to talk about Janelle Monet and her new sci-fi film and a couple of other things. But first, I want to talk about something that I feel like I've kind of neglected, which is Ready Player One. Uh, it's the new virtual reality film directed by steven spielberg it's been out for i guess about a month now and as of now it is number five on the all-time movies about vr list uh and it's grossed over 500 million globally based on the 2011 novel by ernest klein and here's my confession i still haven't seen it all i can tell you is i picked up the novel some background for those who aren't familiar with this ongoing conversation about VR on the Mars podcast is that uh, I'm a big VR enthusiast. I spend a lot of time in VR. I would say that I'm something of an advocate, uh, evangelist for VR. So a lot of my friends expect me to kind of be knee deep in Ready Player One, not only the book, but the film. Uh, I couldn't really get into the book. I think I got about three chapters in and the nostalgia ephemera just it, it became too much i just it it just didn't grab me and i'm i'm sure it's a great book i'm sure it, it has something for a lot of people but it just didn't grab me and i would actually say that would that's the root of my disinterest in the film i've seen the trailers they look kind of disney-esque i don't see anything really uh that compelling and to be honest, on some level, I don't know, even know if this is science fiction. It's more like speculative fiction, because at this point, we actually have VR. We have various VR headsets. I myself regularly do battle in VR. I engage with other people uh, in social VR environments. I mean, we're living. I mean, if you have your hands on like the high end headsets, you know, as I and many others do, I mean, we're living this reality Maybe not exactly as depicted in the film, but this is now more like an extrapolation of an existing reality as opposed to like real science fiction. I'm just curious, have you any any interest in this? I know you're not like really a VR guy, but I, I know you follow kind of, you know, what's going on in, in Hollywood with regard to VR in general. Right. So right now I'm, I'm actually into AR more than VR. I think that um, I have not seen this film. I'm actually a big fan of Steven Spielberg's work. Um, I don't foresee not liking this film. I just haven't had a chance to see it just with the gluttony of content as well as um, my head is down on kind of like my own related VR film, which is not, it's not VR, but yet it has like a VR-esque overtone to the project. So um, in order not to poison the well, I think I have to wait a little bit till I finish, till I wrap on shooting on my thing before I 
tackle watching it. But I will say that I am interested in the dystopian aspect framing story of Ready Player One. Um, that looks really compelling. Yeah, like people kind of just in trailer parks, jacked into VR. They're living this other reality, but in real life, they're basically poor and you know, yeah, it's it's a little dystopian. But and so it's interesting. We're talking about this on the day that uh in real life, Facebook uh just announced at their F eight conference the release of Oculus Go, which is basically the mobile version of the Oculus Rift. It's um a less a lower quality version of VR, and it doesn't require a mobile phone, and it has like a hand controller, it's not um six degrees of freedom. And it's not really as immersive as the Oculus Rift. And you don't have like the touch controllers that kind of give you the sense that you have hands in VR. But this is basically Zuckerberg's play. I mean, I think about a year ago, he said that he wants to have one billion people in VR uh, in the not too distant future. And this is the guy who started with just colleges on Facebook. And now it's up to, I think, two billion, over two billion people. So, I mean, when he makes that kind of commitment, I mean, I don't think we should bet against him. Uh, and so this is basically his big play, uh, the Oculus Go. Uh, I just bought it. I'm not, you know, full confession. I, I don't even know if it's going to be worth it. I don't know if it's going to be any good. But I'm so happy with the Rift that I figured that I needed to give this a try. Is this Now that this is something that doesn't require a giant computer, you know, and like a full setup and sensors mounted to your wall or on your table. Is this something that you have even remote interest in yourself? Like just as a user. How much is the go? It's uh, I think the lowest price. There's two versions. There's a 32 gig version and a 64 gig version. A 32 gig version is about 200 bucks. And the 64 gig version is something like 250, I think, plus tax. Oh, like well, that's pretty accessible. Yeah, exactly. Is VR this, for the masses. So, I mean, is this something you would touch? I just are you, Yeah, you yeah. Just gonna... No, at that price point, I think I'd be interested in, in the fact that I'm not tied to an investment in an additional VR computer to run it. I think that'll make it extremely accessible. And the idea of like interacting with people, you know, a billion people through VR is, is definitely exciting. And they, for all the attendees at F8, they gave away free oculus go headset so they've already seeded the market now with whatever i don't know what the attendance is there but whatever the attendance is there they've seeded the market i'm sure a bunch of people like myself who are hardcore vr people uh immediately whipped out as soon as he announced that it was like for sale today they immediately whipped out their credit cards and like you know ordered one so we'll see if this uh, makes a difference, I think the big problem before with mobile VR was that you had to have the exact right phone to pair it with the headset. And it was kind of unwieldy. And if you wanted to use your your smartphone and use your your VR headset, you kind of had to, like, you know, dislodge it from the cradle. And it was just it was wonky. It was unwieldy and it just wasn't really convenient. This is what people have been asking for for a while. Something that was standalone, no phone needed. And all you need is like a wireless connection and you're good to go. So now we'll see all this time. The thing that's kind of like baffled me is like people like Samsung or companies like Samsung say that they've sold, you know, a few million of the uh, Gear VR. But I never see anyone in a Starbucks or at an airport with one of these things on. So from my vantage point, even as someone who's looking for this. I don't see the traction for mobile VR. So maybe now there'll actually be some traction. So. Oculus Go, 
Uh, if you've been waiting, it is now out. Uh, I want to talk about a new show that I just found out about, one episode in, which is called James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. And this is basically a docu-series, a documentary series on AM- AMC. And it's six one-hour episodes. And it's pretty, it's, it's pretty well done. I saw the first episode the other night. It's uh, every Monday. And it has James Cameron is the host. And he's like in this giant room or kind of like, I don't know, it looks like a, a, a hanger, you know, kind of tricked out sci-fi style. And he's talking to like some pretty big names. He's talking to George Lucas, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Ridley Scott, Keanu Reeves, uh, Steven Spielberg, Christopher Nolan. And that's just like the big names that that I'm thinking of off the top of my head. There are a bunch of like journalists and writers and uh, I think professors who all weigh in and talk to James Cameron just about science fiction. And the other cool thing about this series is that it's broken down into topics. So each six episode, uh, each one of the six episodes is broken down to space, monsters, dark futures, intelligent machines, and time travel. My, my like mini review on this is that this is kind of like a sci, like sci-fi for dummies almost. Cause if you're really like a hardcore science fiction person, there's not a lot that they're showing on this, uh, on the, in, in, at least in the first episode. There's not much that I either didn't already know or wasn't kind of obvious to me. I mean, it is cool to see some of these giant figures from sci- science fiction talk about their work. But I mean, again, if you're a science fiction head, you've probably heard some of what they're saying before. And since it's hosted by James Cameron, it's not like there's going to be, I don't know, controversial, groundbreaking news broken. Does it show older, older science fiction? Yeah. Yeah. They actually there's one point when they're talking about like the 1984 version of the thing. And I mean, yeah, they dealt, they go deep. Like they talk about, Do they go before 1984 though. Like, no, no. Yeah. I, mean, they, they, science I think, before. I think what their focus is on is on modern science fiction, but I think in general, uh-huh. they're like, they're going everything from philosophy, the art of storytelling, the art of design, the art of design, uh, the, the topic of design. They're taking deep dives, but it's not like, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to frame this. It's not like a, maybe like a history channel documentary. I well, got you. Well, even the history channel has, I feel like sometimes in recent years, some of their documentaries are a little light on, you know, on the light side. Maybe, um, yeah. it's not like a BBC documentary. How about that? It's not like a BBC documentary or a PBS documentary where you don't, only you, you not only get the broad strokes, but you also get like these really obscure, you know, anecdotes and stories. That's not really what's happening here. What this is, is I feel like more of the goal of this is, OK, AMC, see, they're, they're aware that science fiction is the new thing. Like that's what is basically dominating TV, film, books. I mean, even if you look at, you know, I think in the last episode I talked about how I don't really cover uh, superhero movies on the Mars Magazine podcast. But the thing about it is like, you know, a lot of those comic book movies do touch on science fiction. I mean, Guardians of, uh, not Guardians of the Galaxy, um, Avengers Infinity War, which just came out. I mean, that's basically a science fiction movie. It's just that it's so full of comic book lore that it kind of takes it into a different, I guess, realm. But right. what AMC is doing here is, it, I think this is basically just like 
science fiction for the masses. Like this is, if you don't understand all the stuff that's going right. on, if you don't understand the background and why all this stuff is so resonant with so many people, here are the foundations and here are the masters. I think from- your argument's right that like in a lot of ways, all the people who know that already, see for me, I would think of it like that documentary jazz, right? Because it went into the past. Right. To get to the future, because in a lot Ken, of ways, you're talking about Ken Burns, right? Ken Burns jazz, yeah. right? Um, because in a lot of ways, you can't even understand where jazz went without knowing where it was. You need that listening appreciation, and I also think, just from my personal taste in sci-fi, I think it's important to see what came before. I love all the period that I'm sure they're talking about, but I do think like it would be interesting to see. Um, clips of things like, um, you know, uh, everything from Fantastic Voyage to Forbidden Planet, which is an amazing film that inspired all those filmmakers. And, and you know, I, and I love the tie in that, you know, the star of Forbidden Planet went on to be like the star of Naked Gun. Like he was like at that time, right. this like serious, handsome actor. And now, you know what I mean? But right. as as by the time we grew up, we we knew him as like a comedic actor. Is that Leslie um, Nielsen? Is that the name? Yes. Yeah, Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, yeah I mean Leslie Nielsen. The Fly, um, War of the Worlds, so many, you know, black and white. And and actually a lot of people don't know who are big fans of the thing from the eighties, uh, a lot of people aren't aware that there was an older black and white version of the thing that was pretty scary That's on right. its own. You know, uh, Exactly. And they don't forget other twists to sci-fi, such as like small gems like Brother from Another Planet or (laughs) other turns. I know I I realize it's not like a mass culture thing, but I do think some of those turns from like trauma or like smaller indie filmmakers. I mean, to some extent, even you wouldn't have 12 Monkeys series without the original the original French film. I think you're educating me now. What, What French film? Oh, well, 12 Monkeys, that movie is based on a French film. Called? Um, hold on a second. I have to admit, I don't oh, have it. Oh, you're using the Google crutch. That's right. It's uh, Legit. And that is and that is what it's based on. That's what yeah, the, the film is. a short is. film, Legit, from 1962. Yeah, I feel like I, I actually know that, and I actually forgot it. And I, I actually, I think I've seen that film. It's called The, the Jetty, and it, it was, it's called The Jetty, but like... It's constructed entirely from still photos, and right. it's about a post-nuclear war experiment and time travel. And it's interesting that, that it's yes. told in the still photos. Yes, it's I've actually really – um, it's on Vimeo, it looks like. Um, but I remember seeing this film. Can you spell it? Um, L-A, L-A, G-T-J-E-T, uh, accent E. You know, you guys listen out there. You, that's how you look for it. Um, so, yeah, so the James Cameron series is not as deep – as any of this, but if you know anyone who's kind of dipping their toe into science fiction or, uh, I don't know, they're checking out some of the Netflix series, the Hulu series, and they're kind of wondering, you know, what is the foundation of all this stuff? It's a good primer. And that leads me to just the whole discussion of science fiction entering into the mainstream. This is an article you shared with me, um, I guess about a week ago, about Netflix and how this analysis firm basically kind of crunched the numbers and figured out that science fiction is Netflix's new focus. And this is funny because just in the last episode of the Mars podcast that we, 
we were talking about how it is basically like Netflix is basically the new sci-fi channel, even though the you know official sci-fi channel SYFY still does science fiction to some extent. Netflix has by and large become the new science fiction channel. And a company called Ampere Analysis, which is a TV analysis firm, uh, says that 29% of Netflix's new programming will focus on science fiction. And it now leads all categories. And I think just as recently as 2017, they're saying that comedy was like the biggest genre, but now it's science fiction. And I'm a little, I'm happy, but I'm worried because I feel like this is, this is great because we're getting more. I mean, the last episode we talked about altered carbon. We're about to talk about lost in space. I mean, the OA. Uh, there's just a bunch of Netflix like original programming that deals with science fiction. But I'm just a little bit worried that kind of similar to what's happening with the whole superhero movie craze that we're going to like hit a glut point. Right, right. Um, I think that's always a danger. I mean, I think that we have reached a place again where sci-fi makes sense in our world because we reached a place. I think that's why Black Mirror works is because like as a a final – Right. For the final as the real inheritor of the Twilight Zone um, legacy, because science advanced to a point where now the common man knows can connect to these stories about the future um, because he is more aware of where things are going. And we could extrapolate great stories in our minds about it, whereas Mm -hmm. I think things were stagnant a bit in the 70s and I'm sorry, the 80s in particular. I mean, I think the only thing we invented back then was like. Um, the, the, the bedazzler and that wasn't kind of like oh shit where do we go with this like you can't really like great sci-fi wasn't going to be made at that period and then there was some more advances in in science and then we were able to do new stories but I think right now science has made so many advances on so many fronts that like now we can dream again so you're saying science and technology have caught up to science fiction in a sense Right. So like now that it moved forward, now you can dream about these subjects and extrapolate forward where we could be at. Whereas whereas um, before it took maybe a little bit more imagination is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and then, like I said, that primes the audience for for desiring it because they can connect to it because you can connect to their fears about the future because, you know, something about, uh, you know, social media or space travel or whatever because we know more about that there's other planets out there you can do a film like interstellar and the average man can be like i identify with that because i have read up myself about you know them discovering new exoplanets like i feel like um just like the moon mission the original moon mission inspired a shitload of the space race in the 60s inspired a whole lot of science fiction i guess elon musk is inspiring some more interest in space too absolutely I mean, last episode, I, you know, we talked to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the famed astrophysicist, and he's not so much, he doesn't seem to be so much a believer in what Elon Musk is doing. But I do know just for a fact, just you can just look at social media, the fact that Elon Musk is so engaged and has so many people following him, people who have no science or technology background. And they're deeply, you know, invested in what's happening with the launches and what's happening with his electric cars and, you know, transportation efforts and all this stuff. I mean, yeah, we are at a point where, you know, 
yeah, I hadn't really thought about this too much, but yeah, I think the the science and technology has kind of reached a point where it, it not only has caught up with the science fiction, but it's something I have said before. It's getting harder to write science fiction. You know, what what can you actually invent? What can you actually dream up now that isn't in the realm of like imaginable possibility from the average person? So I agree. So one of the new shows that Netflix is um, about to launch is called Another Life, starring Katie Sackhoff. Uh, you might know her as Starbuck from the uh, sci- sci-fi channel's version of Battlestar Galactica. And she is, let's see, the description is an astronaut who leads a crew on a mission to explore the genesis of an alien artifact. And uh, they they face danger on a one-way, on what may be a one-way mission. And they've ordered, Netflix has ordered 10 episodes of the first season. So at this point, I, I remember there was a time when if there was a new science fiction show coming to Netflix, not only did I know about it, I knew all the backstory, I knew who was involved. But at this point, they're coming out with so much science fiction, I, I'm i just losing track. Like, I just found out about this new other Another Life, you know, series so this is it's getting hard to keep track uh which is a good thing again i just hope it doesn't turn into a glut uh next i want to highlight someone who has meant a lot to a lot of people in the pre-podcast days and that is art bell what do you see that night what's happening all right i'm on the way back from las vegas and we're probably about a quarter mile from home to give you the setting it's almost a full moon it's quiet it's so quiet that you can hear crickets at a quarter mile, that quiet. We're on the last leg on the way home, and my wife said, what the hell is that? She was in the passenger seat, and she caught something coming up from behind. I said, I don't know. And I pulled the car over to the side of the road. We both got out, and here coming up from behind us, at about, I would guess, 150 feet, is a triangular object with three lights on it, Three solid lights on it. Uh, one, I believe, was strobing in the front. It had to be about 150 feet from one point of the triangle to the next. It was monstrous. And how far off the ground? About 150 feet. It, it, it looked so big and so close that I could have thrown a rock at it. No kidding. <laughs> You're scared? Even... No, scared is not the right word. Uh, we watched it come up from behind us, Larry, and it came, it came directly over our heads. Close encounters, the stars and the moon went away, and it made no sound. As it passed over our heads, you could hear the crickets at a quarter mile, Larry. Still, no propulsion, no noise, going, I guess, about 30 miles an hour. I was in the Air Force. I know what aerodynamic flight requires, and trust me, this thing was defying gravity. Of course, the explanation would be that's an experimental Air Force base that's secret to everyone, and that probably is something they're working on. Then, maybe so, but... If we have anti-gravitic craft, that's as almost as big a story as if they are here. <laughs> this defied the law of gravity. Absolutely. 30 miles an hour, floating, not flying. And we watched it, we stood and we watched it go, watched it go over the valley for about five minutes, kind of with our mouths on our, you know, open. Why did that not make you a believer that there is something somewhere else? It did make me a believer that there are things that we don't know about. Now, it could be ours, it could be theirs, but the way I figure it, either way, it's a big, big story. 
I guess you can call him a radio, a terrestrial radio pioneer, um, a conspiracy theorist, a science and technology enthusiast. He passed away on April 13th of this year. And not only April 13th, but he passed away on Friday the 13th at the age of 72, which I don't know for Art Bell, who is known uh, in radio circles is kind of like a pretty weird guy from the pass away on Friday the 13th was pretty weird. Uh, his show was called coast to coast AM and it would run from 1 AM to 5 AM. And this show ran for decades. I had trouble tracking down like the original launch date, but it appears to have launched, uh, around sometime around 1986. And this guy is just, he's a big, he's an interesting character. He was a air force veteran, uh, he lived in Japan. He lived in the Philippines. And when he returned to the States, he broadcast in Nevada in the middle of the desert, apparently not too far from uh, Area 51. And a lot of like what he would talk about. And again, remember, this show went from 1 a.m. to 5 p.m., 5 a.m. So this is exactly the time where, let's say, if you are obsessed with cons conspiracy theories or the government you know, sending transmissions through the television to control your brain or, you know, maybe you, you're you thinking you go to the hospital and they put it, they're putting chips in people and all that kind of stuff. And this is the kind of stuff that occupies your mind. Well, then, yeah, there's, there's a good chance that from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. you may be up late at night with, you know, reading books or, you know, watching TV or, or just searching. And that's how I found him. Yeah, exactly. I found him that way. I, I I definitely remember being a kid and up late for some reason, and it came on, and I'm like, oh my god, you're talking about aliens? I'm like, this is for me, and I like sat intensely listening to it, and easily wanted to devour many other episodes, um, even though radio wasn't necessarily a natural medium for me to listen to um the internet was my thing like i definitely like if there was like a way i think i even listened to it on the computer sometimes like that was like if, if i could find episodes to click on on the web then i would listen to that but i didn't necessarily turn on the radio gotcha. i was kind of like out of the radio by then well one other thing i want to mention um in january he's not the only kind of radio legend that we just lost in january we also lost joe frank uh, Joe Frank, it's hard to describe him. He wasn't really a conspiracy theorist. He, I would say he was more of like a radio artist and he would broadcast these long monologues and pieces that were kind of like radio theater meets reality. Um, and in some way, if you check out the archives of Joe Frank's work, I would, I would definitely say he's a direct precursor to the modern podcast. Um, Joe Frank, if you don't know him, out there listening, check them out, you know, track them down. But uh, Art Bell, I mean, this is the guy who, I mean, in many ways, he's kind of like uh, the X-Files in real life, right? Like Mulder yes. on the radio in yes. real life. The guy really believed yes. in aliens. He really believed that we had been visited, that, you know, UFOs were real objects that came. And it, it was always kind of a mystery as to, does this guy truly believe what he's saying? Or is this just a, a shtick? that he's putting on to kind of like further the radio uh, persona. But I don't know. I don't think you keep it up for as long as he did without really believing that stuff. You know what I mean? I think this is what Art Bell had. And I feel like the person who, you know, his successor, George Norrie, um, 
both have. First of all, they have unending patience. They, they're really kind to their guests, no matter how far off the deep end they go. <laughs> right. I think that what they have special, that our bill had special and pioneered, was the complete open mind. Who's willing to come to the table, have a guest on, and just listen. Right. Listen to what they had to say. It wasn't about challenging them, correcting them. Just listen to what they have to say and let the viewer sort out what he is willing to believe. I feel that he did believe in certain things. Um, every once in a while, I think he would make those things clear what he was into. But I also think he was in the, in the habit of letting the guests get everything they had to say out. Because somewhere in the fantasy of their mind, there's a bit of truth there that you can extract and i think that like some of the guests were on the up and up i think some of them were playing games i feel like if he really felt they were playing games they weren't invited back right um i am sure there's some guests who were lying about their experiences and just very good at that and promoting themselves that got away with it but i also think um to some extent yeah of course radio is a certain amount of theater but i just think his his model wasn't about it seemed so his model was about setting the stage for an open mind and let his viewers who are intelligent decide what they thought was real and what wasn't. And if he, if the person seemed to be really fake, I feel like he was very kind to them, you know, nodded in agreement, sort of like moved the conversation along. I, I think he was a master at, a, at, at the conversational judo. I 1000% agree. And I almost feel like there's kind of like a void now, like there's a vacuum now that he's gone. We kind of need like some new conspiratorial voice, not 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 crazy, not um, uh, not over the deep end. Like, um, oh, God, what's the guy, the conservative guy uh, kind of heavy set? You know who I'm talking about. Uh, Infowars, the guy who not the guy who does mm -hmm. Infowars. Alex um, Jones. Alex Jones. Not not that kind of guy, but uh, kind of like what you said. Like Art Bell was generally very polite and kind to his guests, you know, whether he agreed with them or not. And it was really just a platform to explore and to expose some of what people were thinking. I'm very sure, you know, over the years, some of the things I heard, I was very sure that, that some of the stuff I heard was just complete, like, BS, you know, like this, this is like what I'm listening Poppy to. Of yeah, pop, yeah, of the highest daughter. What I'm <laughs> listening to is just complete, you know, whatever. But, it, you know, every now and then he'd have an episode where, you know, it's 3 a.m. And everything, you know, in your neighborhood and your, your home or whatever, everything's quiet. And it's just his voice. Lights, out. Lights are out. It's dark outside. And you just hear his voice. And he says just enough of the right things that make you begin to wonder, wait a minute, you know, are we being watched? Are we being observed from on high? Have we been visited? You know, is there something lurking out there in the darkness? So I'm and really you know it before you know it. Sun, the sun is coming up. <laughs> exactly. You hear the birds chirping and you're like, I really stayed up all this time <laughs> exactly. with Art Bell. And you're disoriented and you're just you're just <laughs> sleepless and disoriented enough to think, Okay, well, maybe some of that was true, you know. Maybe, that is true. You know, so I'm really gonna miss that. Um, Art Bell, age 72, April 13th, 2018. Rest in peace. And next, we want to talk about Janelle Monae and her new short film, short science fiction film called Dirty Computer. 
They started calling us computers. People began vanishing, and the cleaning began. You were dirty if you looked different. You were dirty if you refused to live the way they dictated. You were dirty if you showed any form of opposition at all. And if you were dirty, it was only a matter of time. So this is the long form, I guess, video art piece that Janelle Monet released. Uh, I guess about, it's been about a week now or just a couple, like a few days now uh, in conjunction with her new album, Dirty Computer. It's 45 minutes long. It stars Tessa Thompson, who we all know from, I don't know, HBO's Westworld, uh, Thor Ragnarok. She was the Valkyrie in that. And, you know, various other what uh Dear White People, right? She's uh I think she's the star of Dear White People. No? Have you not seen that? No, I haven't seen is that. Is that not is that not in your uh in your wheelhouse? <laughs> the wheelhouse is the right word, it's true. <laughs> um yeah, I'm pretty sure she starred in uh Dear White People. And I'm into the sci-fi deracinated thing. Yeah, so she so yeah, so the whole piece kind of fluctuates between moments of dramatic scenes, you know, acting, set pieces, and then kind of mu music video pieces. And based on the credits, it appears that there are two directors for the overall kind of dramatic narrative. And then there are there appear to be several different directors for the music videos. So you and I both checked this out when it came out a few days ago. I, I give you the floor. What did you think? Me, I think that um, I was impressed with the creativity and the fact that she has she's really a, um, has a commitment to sci-fi thematics for her a large swath of her work, and that she was able to take her her platform and budget and pump it into a sci-fi a sci-fi attempt at um, a version of like Beyonce's Lemonade to make like a full length music video film and tell a coherent story. It's very, very super ambitious. And um, there's a lot to like about it. And I'm super impressed um, with her, her drive. I'm, I, I got to throw the flag. This is not the hot fire that I heard from you when you first saw it on first blush. Did you just have time to like think about it? I mean, this is not what you were saying when you first saw it. When I when we talked, I mean, I do have critical comments. If you wish to unlock those, okay, yeah, no, we're, no, I want to unlock that. But first, I'll weigh in a little bit myself. But I, yes, I do want to unlock those comments. But I do believe in the thing I just said. Though. I feel like Absolutely. everything I said does not take I, anything. I, I agree with everything you just said as well. So let me give some background on myself, my relationship to Janelle Monet, not personal relationship, but as a, as a listener. Um, I consider myself one of her earliest supporters. She, um, when she came out with Metropolis Suite One in 2007, this is an album that I tried to get everyone to listen to. And this is something that she, you know, self-produced by her and her crew, self-released. It was like a really bootstrapped effort, but it sounded amazing. And I remember one thing that kind of stood out to me was that it really reminded me of Michael Jackson, but not in kind of like a derivative 
copycat kind of way. It just sounded like, wow, this is kind of like this is this is what the best of Michael Jackson might have been 2.0, like if he had evolved into some other person or whatever. And so that was back in 2007. I tried to get everybody to listen. I was really and even when I saw her like eventually perform, I was really impressed. She can dance her ass off her like stage craft. And then she came out with Arch Android in 2010. And, you know, she was like really hardcore science fiction in terms of her aesthetic right from the beginning. And so on both of her first two albums, she's appearing on the album cover either as a robot or with kind of like sci-fi aesthetics framing the visuals. So she's been like a, I mean, she appears to be like a science fiction fan, you know, from early on. So it's no surprise that the new film, this 45 minute short science fiction film called Dirty Computer is really just like speaking to all of her interest in robotics and kind of, I think there's a flying car sequence that you really like. I mean, all of this stuff is really you know, it speaks to where she's she's not just like putting on the science fiction cape because it's cool right now. No, I would say like back in 2007, we were still kind of like in a period where science fiction was, I, I think, in the mainstream. I think in the mainstream in the U.S., science fiction has always had some popularity, but it hasn't. I don't think it's ever been as more as popular as it is now. And so in 2007, she was still kind of like an outlier in terms of musicians aggressively in modern times saying, you know, I'm all about science fiction. So this is not off brand, but I have to say as someone who has enjoyed her music for years, there's nothing here that I really liked except uh, maybe one song, which is called I Like That. But that was it. That was about a few minutes long. The quality in terms of just the look of the film, I wouldn't call it rich. It it seemed um, low budget, not in a good way. The acting, you know, Tessa Thompson is Tessa Thompson, meaning she's just she's just good. I think you can like I don't even I am at this point. I wonder if even a really bad director could make her look bad. She's just that good. But Janelle Monet herself, I'm not sure if acting is really her thing. Uh, I, I saw her in um, Philip K. Dick's uh, Electric Dreams, which is a new science fiction series uh, from the U.K., just came out. Uh, it's about, I don't know, maybe six, nine months old. And in one of the episodes, it's basically like Outer Limits, but, you know, framed around Philip K. Dick's work. And in one of the episodes, she is representing herself as a robot. And I'm not going to give away the plot, but it's a pretty interesting episode. And But that role doesn't really require her to act, per se, other than just act like a robot, you know, kind of be stiff you know, and issue a couple of lines here and there. But but in this in this short film, Dirty Computer, she's emoting. She's actually in, engaging with Tessa Thompson with dialogue and everything. And I just I just don't think I mean, a lot of music artists are not great actors, but it seems like she wants to take this a little bit further, maybe begin to accept real, you know, mainstream roles. Hidden figures. Hidden figures. So this is clear, like she wants to to act, but who, you know the production. Is that your major problem with this? Is just her acting? No, 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 no. That's just one. Uh, I feel like she's not a great actress, at least in this piece. Uh, the look of the film, for me, I mean, th- 
there are a couple of music vi- videos in the you know that are kind of like cut into the middle of this whole work that actually look pretty good. But in terms of the dramatic set pieces, a lot of it looks cheap. It doesn't look visually. Um, I feel like with science fiction aesthetics, you have to reach a certain level of if you're going to go cheap, there's a certain way you have to handle the material. And if you have a big budget, then there's a a different way you can handle the material. In this case, I just feel like it was just handled shoddily. That that's the word that just jumps to mind. Handled shoddily, and just and just as a music fan, as someone who has enjoyed her music in the past, uh, it just didn't really hit me. I did I do I, you know on social media, online, everything. I see a lot of people praising it. I'm gonna say, and you know, I may take some heat for this. I feel like it's the social messages that she's sending, which frankly I agree with. I agree with the things she's saying about identity and feminism, and you know. Her, uh, you know, her right to describe herself and to express herself the way she wants to do, you know, express herself. I mean, I'm, I'm all behind all the messages she's sending are great. But I honestly, in this case, it, it's almost it almost reminds me of like some other artists. I'm not I'm not going to put the <laughs> OK, I'll just say it reminds me a little bit of Taylor Swift, where the message seems to be superseding the quality of the music. Uh, I'm not calling her Taylor Swift. I'm not saying this is Taylor Swift level. This is definitely better than Taylor Swift. But I got more out of this in terms of the message than the music. The music for me, like her early work that I mentioned, uh, Metropolis and uh, Arch Android, there were messages in that music, but the music was great. I mean, you just want to bump that music. There's very little here that I want to listen to again. So visuals, acting, the music... It just it just didn't do it for me. How about you, sir? Like, yes, unlock the box. I mean, well, the music, the music this time around, I like her. Usually this music was like not not in the zone for my taste at the moment. Maybe I could give it another listen. I also think I was more looking at the visuals and the science fiction part than listening to the music, to be fair. Um, But, yeah, some of the songs were on a little bit on the pop side for me. Um, and I like pop music, but like, unfortunately, it wasn't like enough for me to like want to get up and dance. I think the main part, though, is I was looking at the visuals. And although it was sci-fi, um, there was there was a, a missing cohesiveness to it um, and world building a bit. I know they tried to do a world build on it. But, yeah, I don't know if it was as tight world building wise as I would have liked to seen and obviously when you're working with multiple directors on a project that's always a chance that that's going to happen because you just have too many different cooks and visions to not have like a united vision across the whole piece um I did like some of the science fiction references I thought some of them were uneven some were really good I just think that's one of the problems in the sci-fi thematic is the idea that like you want to build this world so you could be pulled into it. And in this format, you know, it, it can be done in a film and a music video. It's not that it can't, absolutely can, but like it just, you know, between the different directors and the different set pieces, like there wasn't enough time to pull it all together. I mean, maybe I need to rewatch it and I, I think I'll give it a rewatch. Re- wait, wait, like- you can sit, you, you, you'll, you have the ability to sit through that again. Yeah, I mean, I, think I mean, I, I, it was I think hard, dude. It was hard for me to get through that once. And I, and this is someone I, I repeat 
I consider myself a Janelle Monet early adopter, supporter, lover. I just love everything she represents. I love her music or I've I have loved her past music and I it was a, it was tough getting through that, man. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to not rewatch it cuz you just talked me out of it. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, that's you know. bad. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, so the look of it. I mean, as a you know, I mean a, a filmmaker yourself, what do you think about the look? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think I I mean, I thought it was cool. I just think it wasn't fully cohesive between the different directors and also the thematic that they chose. I think in general with sci-fi, you have apocalyptic, you have dystopia. I think that like they kind of started off with the idea of like a deconstructed like class warfare apocalypse where but then it was like dystopian. And at, at certain points during the video, it actually was like utopia like. And I feel like as though it was just straight up, everything's all good. And I think that like that was like kind of confusing the like ups and downs yeah. of the piece and stuff because yeah. it wasn't fully committed to like the na- the nature of. I mean, I get, I do, I did see the elements. You know, there was like some spying going on, or like you know, forbidden love. I I I totally get that those elements, but like with the thing about the commitment to pulling somebody into the story world. You know, um, those elements are better if they're like coherent, if they're cohesive, they match to each other. I think um, I think that there was definitely some different levels going on and that made it harder to make the cohesive world work. Um, but it was definitely an excellent attempt and I applaud it. And it's interesting when you brought up when we first started talking about this, you talk you referenced uh, Beyonce's Lemonade. And I think the, the big yeah. difference is when you have someone like a Beyonce. Well, first of all, I think why well, no? I I I haven't even read an interview with this. I can just listen to her early work and know that she was a fan, may still be a fan of Michael Jackson's work, and he was known for being one of the pioneers of long form video uh, works. And so this kind of this seems like it harkens back to that. But I think yeah, a more contemporary reference would be Beyonce's Lemonade work. But the thing about that is, when you're Beyonce, you have that big budget. You can do these really interesting visual flourishes and dives into kind of, you know, this is what Beyonce looks like in this environment. And what if this was happening? But I think if you're going to take if you're going to tackle science fiction and if you don't have the budget, which look, who knows how much this costs? Maybe it maybe they had a huge budget. Who knows? But if you're going to tackle science fiction, you either need the budget to pull off what the world building, as you mentioned, that they were trying to pull off, or you keep it really bare bones. You know, what's the All right, film? So what, what, what's, to, the, to, what, no, what's that film where, um, oh God, where you're supposed to be perfect? Um, Gattaca. Gattaca, exactly. You could pull off a low budget version of Gattaca with a, you know, with a low budget situation and just kind of shooting with the right angles and using the right existing buildings that have interesting architecture and all that, you can do a high concept science fiction approach with a low budget. But when you try to do flying cars and I'm a robot and, you know, we have these control rooms and all this stuff, it's going to show if you don't, if you don't put the money in. Yeah. I think that, well, I don't know if I agree with that. I feel like if you look at like a video, like let's say just pulling something out, like Rubber Johnny, 
like you can do something on a tight budget. You just have to put everything into perspective. Like, that's what I think I was getting at about like some of the shots going for like Utopia because then hold on, you're yeah. talking about the old um, Apex Twin video, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Okay, Rubber Johnny. Like I feel like although not not necessarily directly sci-fi, you had this feeling of this world. Like here was this guy trapped in a room and shit, and then when the whatever abuser experimenter. Yeah, but again, so, it's a single shot. And it's using an effect that the person, you know, that the producers kind of, you know, use to great effect. When you're trying to like completely world build and you have multiple locations, I think you either need the money or you have to like scale it down in terms of what you're trying to show. So when you say scale it down, I agree with you, but there's a way to scale it down. I think that's what I meant about like trying to go for like the utopia look or you have to have a framing story that brings it all together. And the framing story was too too big right for the money they had right exactly if it was a different framing story see that's why i like about let's say like gritty gritty like like and this is like kind of obviously since i work with smaller budgets you know i have to do like gritty fighters in an urban environment where it's tight and small and controlled and that way it looks like a million dollars but because i'm not trying to go for huge set pieces on the on a limited budget when you have a huge budget yeah then you can do you know, wider landscapes and fill it in where you want, or you can add flourishes that that will allude to a big to to dress up the bigger set piece. And that because if it's empty, then it makes it feel like you didn't have enough money, like you're saying. Right. So I, I agree with you. I think we're on the same page. I mean, like same pitch black. There. I don't remember the budget, but I mean, pitch black is clearly a very low budget movie, but it launched an entire franchise and it didn't suffer. From the low budget, it was aspect. low budget, but they really maximized everything. Yeah, it was incredible. This was her opportunity to really, and again, look, a lot of people seem to like this. There are a lot of supporters out there who are praising it. You know, it's got a lot of views. I think part of the reason, again, I might take shots for this. I think part of the reason more people aren't maybe criticizing it is because the messages uh, contained in the video are so progressive and positive and, you know, just kind of they're about self-empowerment. So in general, you don't want to really tamp that down with any criticism, but that's, you know, this is a science, you know, science fiction meets technology show. We're going to talk about the science fiction. So we're going to call them as we see them and dirty computer. I'm sorry. It just, yeah, I, it just didn't do it for me. Um, I'm looking forward to her next attempt. I think the message is strong. I think her musical ability is strong. I just feel like this was a big misfire. Gotcha. I'm going to rewatch it and see if I move up in one direction or the other. So with that, let's move on to the final topic. And the, the biggest attempt Netflix has made at its own original programming in terms of taking a beloved science fiction franchise artifact property and rebooting it into modern times and that's lost in space we're lost no kidding this is will robinson of the 24th colonist group i'm the first human to discover evidence of an alien intelligence What is that? It's okay. 
Will! He's with me! Danger, Will Robinson. Starring Toby Stevens, who I know very well from the series Black Sails, where he played a very convincing pirate. Uh, Molly Parker from House of Cards, also Deadwood. And my favorite, one of my favorite actors on the planet, actually, Parker Posey, who plays Dr. Smith. They did a, gen- a gender switch with uh, Dr. Smith, which I love. Uh, I think they picked the perfect actor in Parker Posey because Parker, if you're familiar with Parker Posey's work, oh, first of all, if you're not familiar with her, let's see. Uh, one of my favorite films of hers is The Anniversary Party. If you know her name, you probably like her. Um, to know her is to love her. To know her is to love her. She's been in some bigger films like Blade. She's one of the Blade films. She's been in the Scream franchise. She was in one of the Superman films. So, I mean, she's been in bigger films. But she, I would say, I would call her like an independent film darling. She's like one of the 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 bedrocks of modern independent Definitely film. an anchor. Yeah, an Definitely anchor. Definitely an anchor. Um, she appeared in um, Louis C.K. series in, I think, one of, you know, all his unfortunate deeds notwithstanding. I think she appeared in one of the best episodes of that series and one of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen. And it was primarily due to her. Um, she's just an incredibly talented actress. And I, I just feel like she's someone we don't see enough of. So I was really happy to see her, not just in this series, but in the role of Dr. Smith, because anyone who knows the original Lost in Space series knows that Dr. Smith is evil, but not really evil. You know, he's kind of like this. He's he's the evil that lives in all of us. The the coward, the the liar. Selfish coward. Yeah, the selfish coward that that lurks within all of us. And he just uh, or the original, uh, you know, Dr. Smith basically plays that out. I think the second Dr. Smith was Gary Oldman in the film version of Lost in Space. It's interesting. For some reason, Gary Oldman is another one of my favorite actors. Dr. Smith seems to like, I don't know, that seems to be like a great role that uh, the great actors get. So anyway, so Parker Posey, Parker Posey is Dr. Smith. And of course, you have you have Will, a young Will Robinson. And uh, I think one interesting twist is that the robot is an alien. It's not really, you know, something that they brought with them. Well, this whole thing turns everything on its head. I've, before I get too deep into what I think, I'm just curious what you saw. I think you're you're either done with it or you, you're you deep into the series. Yes, I'm deep into it. I haven't finished it yet. So I've finished everything. Where, where What do you think so far? So I really love this series. It's really good. Effects are good. Um, a lot of the science is good. The acting is is good. I, I like the characters. I like the setup. It's all around good. I mean, it's just good fucking sci-fi. Um, and now they're like put into a predicament with a certain set of rules around and somebody working against them. Lots of characters have their own desires and, and what they want. There's a lot of good, like scrappy, like, yo, let's fix this. Let's make this work. And there's a little bit of family drama, which is definitely not my thing, but I actually... I actually dig it. I'm very impressed. What'd you think about this, the decision to have an adopted, I think, I think she's black. No, she's adopted. not adopted. No, she's not adopted. Not all right. Me. So if she is adopted, maybe I didn't see it all. I the, the only part I'm up to is where they mentioned that she says that's her mom and she was in the picture before 
you know i mean this is a spoiler maybe we should make yeah yeah no spoilers for lost in space like we're just going to get into spoilers right now okay so yeah the mother she i the only part i've seen so far is that she says that that's her mother she's the oldest and that he you know that she was in the picture before the dad came the, the dad came later who sired the other children but maybe she is adopted i thought that there was a dad for her this is really you, you just threw me off because i really thought i i only focused on the part where yeah someone asked asked her about the father and yeah she did say something like something yeah something similar to what you said but yeah i saw so i guess what you're saying is the mother had her with someone else is what you're saying Right. And then he came in and then took her, took the role of dad for her, too. Huh. That's interesting. I hadn't, for some reason, I just assumed she was adopted. Yeah. That might, yeah, that might actually be the case. Now that that would make a lot of sense. So she is fully part of the family unit, just that that's technically not her biological dad, but he only really knows her. You know, she knows him, only him as her dad. Okay. I just, I just looked it up while you were uh, talking, vamping for me. And yes. It appears that you are correct, sir. Yes. Uh, it is Judy, which is the, the black daughter, is Maureen, which is the mother, Maureen's biracial daughter from her first marriage. I am a na- I do read the narrative well. Thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, so that actually is refreshing because I'll be honest, like before I found that out, I thought it was contrived. And all of that is to me is handled well. Like is that is definitely it's definitely felt good, authentic. I like that they didn't deal with it right away. I like how the, you know, the person that who did come up with that, he was established as kind of like a, you know, a kind of a little bit of a dickhead, but at the same time they have something going on. So it made sense for him to broach it. Like, hey, fuck's going on. <laughs> right, 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 right. How'd um, this happen? You're I mean, you're familiar with Parker Posey, right? Yeah. What'd you think of her performance? I, I mean, I like it. It's great. I think I haven't seen all the episodes, but I'm deep in. I feel like, you know, it's evolving. Um, she, she gets more evil sure. as things go on. I don't want to spoil it. I believe completely it. For She's you. already she is already hinted toward that. She needs she needs some, um, you know what I mean? Some come up and she needs, she needs to get that revenge. <laughs> she needs that feeling of power. It's good. So I came up with um, a take. I have, I have a hot, well, it's not hot anymore because I've seen this. It's been a few weeks since I've seen this. Uh, baked in amber hot take on this whole thing. I feel yeah. like Lost in Space is, I think what they did here was they did something pretty clever, which is they made the TV series Lost, ABC's Lost, in space. And here's why right. I say that, because the original Lost in Space is pretty much all about the family Robinson. Okay. And I think, you know, that whole, the Robinson name is kind of, you know, harkens back from the Robinson Crusoe stranded, you know, you remember that? Yes, of course. Except the robot is there Friday. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so when I first, so when I'm watching this, so the first couple of episodes, I'll be honest, I wasn't really, it it took, I had to plow through first couple of episodes. It really didn't hit me. Kind of like you, the family drama, it just didn't grab me. Uh, so, you know, the acting felt a little it just it just felt a little too I, I was getting distinct Disney ABC after school special vibes, vibes right. you know, uh, initially. And then things took a turn um, in a good way. The tension, the tension built fast. Right. And, and then they had the tent that I have. It was interesting. They had this 
my tent looks like a space tent. It looks like. Yeah. And so, yeah, we get, people don't know you're a, you're a survival guy. You've got the Jeep. You're in the desert a lot. Right. Yeah. Do you know how to mine or, or create water from dirty water? Is that one of your skills? From from my urine, yes. Okay, I, I didn't. Okay, it's TMI, but okay, thank you, thank you. We now know if the apocalypse comes, you can make the the urine water. Good, 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 <laughs> yes, good to know. Right. But yeah, it, the thing that threw me off was like the original Lost in Space was all about, and even the the updated one, the film, the film version was just about the family. Do you know? I like that film version, by the way. I do the too. Guy from Friends, Joey. Yeah, I, yeah, I like it too. Uh, I actually was surprised. He was actually really good, like in the not joking around and shit. Cause that usually, might be his best work. Yo, but he was really good and intense on in there as the pilot. And and just in, in case anyone is wondering who we're talking about, we're talking about Matt LeBlanc. Uh, not just Joey, the character is Matt LeBlanc. So as I was saying, my initial thought was, OK, we're going to they're going to try to have this tiny family, just, you know, mom, dad, a few kids and some sort of robot. And they're going to try to survive and maybe there'll be alien encounters and, you know, natural disaster stuff. And so when we start seeing survivors pop up, I, I felt like they were breaking the franchise. I was like, wait, well, this, this, is, this isn't working. Well, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're, you're going off book here. This isn't, this isn't what it's supposed to be. And then, and that was my thought when there was just one survivor. And then there's another survivor and another survivor. And next thing you know, there's like a whole colony of survivors on this planet. And that's when I came up with the lost uh, analogy. Because, you know, if you saw the series Lost, it was all about unexplained things happening on the island and new threats that you couldn't anticipate. And the whole plot was driven by people keeping secrets from one another. I'm going to tell you what that person over there is doing, but you may not know my true background. My real name is this, that kind of thing. And when I really thought about it, I thought, this is brilliant. They, yeah. they've, they've actually done, you know, the ABC series Lost in Space. Now, as we know that, I mean, spoilers for ABC's Lost, that series didn't really end well in terms of the payoff, at least in my view. And that actually was a science fiction series. A lot of people didn't realize it at the time, but it turned out to be a science fiction series. But with Lost, again, spoilers, if you if you haven't left by now or paused or fast forwarded, you're just going to get the spoilers. So now, wait a minute. I can't go too far ahead of this because you haven't seen everything, right? You're on episode. You're like maybe 70 percent of the way. Seven. Yeah, like episode seven or something. Okay, so I can't. I won't spoil everything for you. Suffice Thank to say, <laughs> suffice to say, the lost uh, analogy, ABC's lost analogy, it only works up to a certain point, and then that's broken in a good way. So I'm curious, what do you think about the alien robot, which is the, the robot which isn't like you know from Earth, isn't a family member, it's an alien. I thought it was a nice way to like add other dimensions to the world. Like now they have a vector in to expand the world. Like you said, like otherwise it would have just been a nuclear family hopping from planet to planet, the old style. Like, oh, look, we lost this. Here's a new planet. <laughs> right, right. Man eating trees, blah, blah, blah. Like now they have like, you know, real um, ways into like, like where did this robot come from? Will somebody come looking for him? You know what I mean? Will he revert back to his old state? Like, uh, uh, what happened? Where did he come from? I think, you know, will they end up on his planet? Who knows? I think that, like, what's on his ship? Will they decipher what's there? Like, I feel like there's mad that, that leaves a lot of story options. 
open for what could happen next. And then there's all these other people involved and it increased the stakes because it's not just the family. It also gives you a chance to keep the family alive, but yet everybody, there's always somebody else to die. Right, right. Like Star Trek. And you know, at a certain point, another thing that kind of stood out to me is the, um, what do they call it? The Bechdel test. This seems to not pass the Bechdel test. This, this destroys it. Like this is like, there are scenes, I feel like women are leading like the original series seemed to be about young Will Robinson, dad, uh, the cool teenage. I can't remember. Was was there a cool teenage son in the original from the sixties, or was that just in the film? Do you remember? I don't know the TV show that well. I feel like most of the time it was like, here's the family, get them out of the way, and just get to Mister Smith, Will, and the robot. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was how it went usually. And in this version, I feel like the mother and Dr. Smith, Parker Posey, and the daughter are kind of Judy, you know, the, the biracial daughter. I feel like they are basically leading this entire thing. And it just, I feel like it. Th- so what's the Bechtel test? So the Bechtel test, you know, I'm going to say this incorrectly because I don't remember it exactly in terms of like the technical way it's laid out. But generally, the idea is the notion that a film, like many films in Hollywood and television series, often don't have a scene without a man talking or a man involved in the scene or a scene where, let's say, the two women are on screen together and they are for some reason talking about the men. So the idea is uh, if you've passed the and this is my understanding of it, I could be, you know, again, I'm not perfect on perfect on this. But my understanding is that if you pass the Bechdel test, basically you have a woman or two women on screen and they aren't necessarily referencing some other man. The current scene or, you know, like episode or set piece is all about them. And they they aren't necessarily leaning on some male character uh, as a reference point, they aren't a wife. They aren't the girlfriend of this or that person. Uh, the this the part of the plot that we're looking at at that particular moment is driven by them. So, so that's kind of my general understanding of it. I'm sure mm-hmm. you know someone listening out there might be able to correct me. You know, for you know some of the areas I'm not clear on, but in general, like just that general notion, I think this like kind of destroys that. Like in a good way. This, I mean, this there are just long stretches where it's like. Judy, you know, the the daughter, the mom, you know, Dr. Smith, like they're just like long set pieces where it's all about. Yeah, I, you know, this is a dangerous territory, but um, can I just risk saying that I felt like it was like probably this series has like some of the best example that I've seen in a long time of like authentic characters who are women who are like doing their thing and it doesn't feel like forced. It feels very natural and good. Right. Right. Um, and I enjoyed all the scenes that they crafted. Doesn't feel like it's um fake. And I feel like that's including with ethnicity, with diversity in the series itself. If it doesn't feel like forced and feels natural and good. So I feel like I mean that's probably why you don't need to worry about that. I think that also too, you know, you know, hopefully we've evolved enough that we can enjoy our content without worrying about like is this character male or female? Um, I'm definitely there. 
But that being said, I still am sometimes hyper aware, less so now, but like in this particular series, I have to say that everything feels good and natural in that regard. And I'm very impressed with with that because that's how it should be in those scenes. Yeah. And even the scenes with the uh, Judy and the younger sister, like yeah. they're like there are whole stretches where it's just about them interacting with each other as siblings. And it's just two young girls. Well, actually, the one the one playing Judy is actually an adult, I found out. So she's not she's not actually a teenager. But they're basically, I think, in the film or in the series, Judy's 18 and her younger sister, I don't know, maybe she's 15 or 16. And they're just long stretches where these two young women are just it's all about them. It's all about their interactions. They're not referencing dad. They're not referencing their younger brother. And it's, I don't know, it's just, not only is this a fresh take on the franchise, it's just, it's one of, and it's not a situation where it's kind of like a Sigourney Weaver-esque situation where, okay, we'll give you the woman, but, you know, we'll put her in peril. And it's kind of like, oh, the woman perseveres, you know, fighting the monster. No, it's just regular, like you said, it's just regular, really normal, regular uh, interactions and yeah, it was kind of refreshing. But honestly, I think the the best thing about it is I didn't realize like the things I'm saying right now. I didn't realize until after the fact, like after the series was after I was done watching the series. That's when it occurred to me, like, wow, like this was really it really had like a lot of women in the front in terms of leading the plot and interactions and just engaging the the story, the the entire narrative. So that was refreshing. Right. I felt like the world building and just the the effects were amazing. I was really worried about that, particularly in the beginning, the first couple of episodes. You know, I had some concerns. No, no problem. I I can't spoil the end for you. I just the end has me a little bit worried for where they're going to go with this series. But as 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 a you know, as a first season, I think they did a great job. I'm happy to see my my guy from Black Sails. He's one of my favorite actors. Good to see him around. Some of the other actors, I don't know. It's kind of like Lost on ABC. Like I said, like it's these are kind of like character actors in some cases. Right. The core you, fa- the core family and Mr. Smith are all good. I, yeah. I would definitely think there's a, a little bit of the other, but I don't I don't I don't even know if they need to be good because it seems like some of them are just um, like ensigns on red shirt ensigns on Star Trek. They're there to like get to know them. And then as a, you know what I mean? They could be sacrificed for right. react to make the world real, that there's real drama, I'm sorry, real peril and something at stake at the world. If they get close to the person and they die, but then we keep the core family. But like, I'm not, I, and hopefully that's not a spoiler. I mean, I don't, you know, you wouldn't imagine they're going to kill off the core family. Right. They'll be in jeopardy. They might suffer loss, but like we need the core family to survive. And that's OK. I think um, as long as you keep up the peril in the right ways, the stakes are high. You're going to you're going to feel it if it's done right or same with like Star Wars or something. If it's done right, you will. it won't matter. You, you'll suspend disbelief that your core characters are actually probably going to be invincible for the whole series. And, you know, I, I just want to emphasize again with Parker Posey, in much the same way that Gary Oldman, if you give Gary Oldman a two-dimensional role, you're wasting a, an incredibly uh, complicated and deep actor. And I think he's been given those looks throughout his career. 
And it's always disappointed me with Parker Posey that she hasn't been given the same opportunity. She's like, all you have to do is like look at a, a small sampling of her work to realize how complex and just malleable and, and just, she's very complicated. She's a great actor. And I just feel like she hasn't been given enough chances to really show how complicated she can get on screen. And I think Dr. Smith is the perfect vehicle for what she's capable of. So I'm just really happy to like see more of that, assuming they keep Good. her around. So Lost in Space on Netflix. Check it out. Binge it. I binged it. It was good. It is available on Netflix now. It's just one of many, as we mentioned before, of Netflix's new cavalcade torrent of science fiction properties. John Threat, thank you uh, for joining us again. I think this is like number three, right? How many times? Have yeah, you my been? pleasure. This is like and number my, three, I, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, sci-fi, hacking, breaking in the shit, causing trouble, call me. So what are, what are you up to? You, you had any uh, stuff to plug? Right now, I would say um, I'm gearing up for a uh, for a seed and spark on this film that I'm putting together, an indie film, a science fiction film. Wait, I, I might add. I a seed and spark? What is that? Yes, that's kind of like Kickstarter, but for film. Oh, really? Can you spell that? Yes. Seed and spark. Oh, seed and spark.com. Yes. And that's Kickstarter for films. I did not know about that. Yeah. Wow. So oh, do, yeah. do we know of like what the most successful project or, you know, like most uh, or best funded? Not right now, but there's a lot of good films going on on seed and spark, and mine is going to be up there. And I also have. A website up for the film. It's called TheMemoryThieves.com. TheMemoryThieves.com. And you'll soon be on Seed and Spark. Wow. Yes. Okay, good. This is good to know. Any social media? Um, there's also The Memory Thieves on uh, Instagram. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for joining us again. Uh, my name's Adario Strange. This has been the Mars Magazine Podcast. If you want to follow what we're doing, you can... Check us out on Twitter at twitter.com slash marsmagazine or go to marsmagazine.com. Once again, thanks for joining us and we will see you in the future.